0: And welcome to this latest Master Investor Podcast. Uh, I'm Jonathan Davis, and I'm delighted today to be having a conversation with Mark Slater, the uh, founder and uh, CEO, CIO, I think, of uh, Slater Investments, uh, who's been managing uh, open-ended funds for getting on for, I think, 30 years now. Something like that, Mark. I remember I had lunch with you soon after you started. uh, And it's been a very uh, successful and eventful journey since, I think it's fair to say. Perhaps topical to say that we've been through a lot of crises since then. We had the internet sure. bubble, we had the global financial crisis, we've had the pandemic, uh, and now we've got uh, the current bear market and uh, its various causes, which we can talk about. But uh, first of all, I thought I'd better just ask you, you're still investing the same way as when you started?
1: Almost no changes. I'm, I mean, literally, probably the most challenging restriction we've had up until now has in the last few years was we capped the forward PE of any potential purchase at 20 times earnings. But we never budged from that. So that did make life slightly complicated for a couple of years, perhaps in 2019 and 2020, maybe 21. But it also saved us from a lot of problems over the years as well. So I'm not complaining. I think it's a a criterion that works. Uh, But it was challenging at one point. Um, Obviously, in the current environment, it's, it's far less challenging and, it, and it's protective as well.
0: Well, certainly there'll be a lot more companies in your universe now than there were, say, uh, five months ago, uh, of course. But the method itself is based on uh, you run a concentrated portfolio. You're looking for stocks that have a, a, the right combination of, of growth and valuation. Uh, and you also look for shares that have got, normally look for shares that have a strong momentum. Is that still part of the
1: strategy? I mean, really our critical criteria are, Dynamic growth, which we define as 10% plus on a forecast basis. A low peg, so we're we're buying the growth relatively cheaply with a cutoff of 20 times earnings. And then very strong cash conversion, profits being converted into cash. Those are the three primary sibs we use, which still eliminate roughly 95% of the UK market. So only 5% tend to come through that. That's been a fairly consistent number, that 5% really for a very, very long time. Uh, I don't know why, but it has. Um, So, um, yeah, so our our universe at any one time is around 150, 160 names.
0: Uh, Of which you put how many into the portfolio? Uh,
1: I mean, we've ranged in the growth fund from 33 up to 63. But I would say the normal level is around 50, you know, give or take one or two.
0: So the the attraction of this method is a twofold. Once, of course, it's a, it, it's a quality screen effectively by eliminating all the companies you can't invest in, uh, but also, of course, it uh, it makes it rather easier to manage a portfolio because you're you're looking at a well, I say still a significant universe, but it's a, a lot smaller than it could be if you looked at the whole market.
1: Yeah, I mean there aren't that many companies in any market that are growing steadily that are generating cash where you can buy them on sensible terms. So. That's just a fact of life, you know, and uh, you can occasionally find companies that look great, but they're too expensive. But there's normally a time when they're not. I mean, like now, I mean, a, a lot of companies would come back into our universe now that weren't there. But that happens surprisingly frequently, actually. You know, it happened in the end of 2018. It was a pretty vicious, it was a proper bear market, fourth quarter of 2018. Happened again in 2020, it's happening again now. So it's, it's a fairly frequent occurrence where there's, where the tree is shaken. And even very good quality businesses, which typically are on high multiples, can come down into the kind of more recognisable range.
0: Well, let's talk about a couple of examples in a minute. I just want to quickly just finish setting the context, which is that you invest in uh, primarily or almost totally in UK-listed companies, whether you look at AIM as well as the main market. And
1: um, I mean, just on AIM, I mean, it may be worth saying that I think very few managers now make a distinction between AIM and the full list. You know when aim started there were a lot of people who wouldn't go near it the only manager I believe now who doesn't is Aberforth but the only manager I think that don't invest in aim and there are some very good companies on aim so it's it's an interesting hunting ground uh,
0: and you have a benchmark but you're not constrained by it uh, what, what is the benchmark you use
1: well for reporting purposes we we use the um peer group the all companies fund peer group I mean it's there isn't such a thing as a perfect benchmark because we move around. You know, Sometimes we have more in smaller or mid-sized companies. There are times in market cycles where we have a lot more in larger companies. So we move around, but uh, that's as good as any.
0: Okay, so let's talk about what's been happening this year. Obviously, it has been a rollercoaster ride the last couple of years. Since the start of the year or since to just before the start of the end of last year, we've had this quite dramatic change in both the performance of the market, equity markets, and also a lot of style rotation as well. Uh, How has that impacted your fund uh, and how has that compared to uh, the market overall?
1: Well, we've underperformed year to date. It follows very strong performance each of the last three years. So it's not a huge surprise. I don't really buy this idea of rotation, particularly given our approach. You know, our approach is we're trying to marry the best in growth and value. I don't think anyone... Sets out to buy utterly hopeless companies um, in the same way that they don't. Well, most people don't set out <laughs> to buy companies that are ludicrously expensive. So I, I don't buy the uh, growth and value distinction to begin with. I just don't, I think it's a false concept. We're very consciously trying to get the best of both. I think what has happened in the, since really November of 2021 is with rates going up. Obviously, it's affecting the valuation of the more expensive companies more than it is others. And so the very, the the unprofitable, the kind of Cathy Wood type profitless growth companies, of course, have been crucified. And in that process, that's stabilized people. And then you have profit taking amongst other companies that have done well. Whereas I think with some of the kind of what people would term value companies, they haven't gone up. So there's no profit to take. So I think it's more that there are some slight quirks around oil and some areas which have done well for other reasons, which people might put in the value bucket. But I think what's happening now is people are taking profits. People are nervous. And when they're nervous, they they tend first to sell companies that have gone up. That normally settles down at some point um, and people become more discerning and they actually start to look at the earnings at some point so we're in that kind of panicky phase at the moment so uh,
0: we're recording this on the 30th of may and uh we, last week we did actually see some kind of a pick up in the in the in the equity markets after a long run of bad weeks uh, certainly in the the US market this is in some way an unwise question but i mean do you have a feel for whether this feels like an important sort of uh, transition moment in the market or is it you know is this the start of a bear market rally It's going to suck people in
1: um i mean well We don't invest based on a market view, because it's almost impossible to be right. We've been deploying quite aggressively into markets in the last month or two, but we still have quite a lot of liquidity. So we have been buying, not across the board, but we've been buying quite heavily, mainly existing holdings. I think sentiment got extremely bad a week or two ago. The AAII uh, data, which is probably the best sentiment data you can find, which is U.S., Retail investor data was pretty well as bad as it's ever been. Got to about minus fifty. It was minus fifty-three at the worst point in that's net bullish in um, two thousand eight nine. You know, to put it in context, normally minus ten is a very good buy signal. So, my, you know, it was a massively negative. It makes sense that it would be because a lot of these people have been crucified because they're in lean stocks and what have you. So it should become very bad that number. But it was that was an extreme low. Institutional sentiment in America was less bad than retail sentiment, although that became pretty bad too. So I think we had the perfect setup for for a bear market, at least a bear market rally, if not a more. My my instinct is if this is a big bear market, we haven't yet had our Lehman moment, but it it could be over. You know, I I think one has to just be a little bit flexible with these things. Markets tend to move ahead. From what I've seen in pricing in the UK, there's definitely some element of recession that's being priced. You can see that in ratings. Um, I mean, there's no doubt. Now, whether it's all priced, we don't know if we'll get a recession at all. But assuming we do, it's hard to know if it's all priced because you never quite know what's going to happen in a recession and how long it's going to take and all the rest of it. But some element of that is in the price. Now the question is, what actually happens? You know, If there's no recession, markets, I think, will look pretty good. If there's a sudden peace in, in Ukraine somehow or other, that will be a very powerful trigger for markets potentially. So there are a lot of things that could be positive. But my, my instinct is it'll get worse before it gets better it may temporarily get better but i think it'll then get worse and then get better
0: and is that the kind of picture you're getting from the companies you talk to because there's obviously they're, they're on the other side of this thing they're, they're the ones who are who are looking at demand ahead and uh, looking at supply shortages if they're affected by them and so on what are they saying
1: i think it's quite different when you talk to companies they're much more confident than investors and i think you know if you look at the things that are going on at the moment inflation is obviously a concern for investors for companies, it's about whether they can manage their costs and pass on any cost increases they need to pass on. In pretty well every case, the companies we own are passing on costs. Now, there may be a point at which that can't happen anymore, but we're some way off that. In terms of dislocation, we've only got a couple of companies which are more industrial that have really felt dislocation. um and in their case, they're pretty happy about life and it's relatively manageable. yeah you know, it's sort of, impact on earnings, that kind of thing. Nothing very dramatic. In terms of the impact of rates going up, obviously, it's of huge interest to investors because it affects the whole pricing complex. But for companies, it's only really relevant if they've got debt or a pension scheme. And the companies we own don't have a lot of debt. Some have none. Very few have a meaningful pension scheme these days. Again, there are a handful, but they're pretty small numbers. So that's not a very big deal for companies. I think the big one is recession. And you know that's obviously on investors' minds. And companies don't really know what's going to happen if there's a recession. And particularly the sort of recession where prices might be going up and there's disruption. And the, the, the cocktail we have today is not something people have really managed in the business world for a very, very long time, in the same way that investors haven't managed higher rates for a very long time. So they don't know what will happen. But right now, most of them are pretty happy. You know, pretty well the only recessionary indicator I've seen so far in terms of actual hard evidence is one or two companies have talked about, not so much companies we own, but just generally have talked about advertising getting a bit softer. And that tends to be the kind of very general rather less clever bits of the advertising market. Um, That's the only evidence so far of anything slowing down. So again, I think investors are a long way further ahead on the curve than companies in terms of pricing problems, in terms of thinking about problems.
0: So, I mean, you own a number of consumer-facing companies, obviously, and uh, there's not that much evidence, is this what you're saying, that the actual, in terms of consumers themselves, they're not yet cutting back in the way that you would expect, though they their sentiment too may be deteriorating, judging by the media headlines anyway, at least.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting. I, I mean, you know, a lot of things are very strong still um, at the moment, but the market looks ahead. You know, the market, I think it basically prices 10 out of every five recessions. So you know, it, it does price recessions that don't happen. but. It's definitely pricing an element of recession now because it's looking ahead. So I'm not saying it won't happen. I think it's I'm like, I mean, it's very likely at least some sort of slowdown. You know, there's never been an energy crisis without a slowdown before, so I don't see why this time would be any different. So I think th- there will be a problem down the road, but I think the market is pretty good at looking ahead. So you know it may, it's entirely feasible that by the time we get a recession, assuming there is one, markets actually could have bottomed. That's entirely feasible. I'm not saying that will happen, but it could. You know, it, it's entirely consistent with how markets often behave.
0: So, if we now look at what you do own into this, I mean, well, let's just take one sector first and get that out of the way. In terms of commodities and energy and so on, it's not something I think would often be a uh, heavily overweighted, shall we say. But what kind of exposure do you have there uh, at the moment? And uh, given that what's happening around the world in terms of energy prices and commodities, uh, it, it could obviously all break tomorrow or it could uh, carry on for a while. What do, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't own any energy exposure at all because there's nothing that really fits what we do. In terms of um, commodities, we only have one company, uh, a company called Jubilee, which is, uh, it, it extracts metal from tailings in um, both in South Africa and Zambia. That is exposed to PGMs, you know, just the platinum group metals, it's exposed to copper, it's potentially exposed to cobalt, all of which have been strong. We don't own the business because we think these prices are going to go up. We own the business because their production rate's going to go up a lot. And that's the key. If production goes up a lot, you can handle what happens to prices. Clearly, if there's a major recession, if China slows down materially, that's going to put pressure on, on at least some commodity prices. I don't think it will. For a very, very long time, because I still think there are shortages. There's huge dislocation, even in copper. You know, the price has gone up a lot in the last couple of years, but it's, got, it's about ten percent off the top now. Um, most of that's happened in the last month or two. But you look, you look at what's happening in Chile, with you know a pretty important mining province. It's complete chaos in terms of whether it's whether you can operate in Chile now. And copper is very important in terms of the renewable. Sort of investment wave, so it's very copper intensive. So my my view is, even with a slowdown, I'm not overly concerned about that company um, in terms of metals pricing. So just be clear on this: there's kind
0: of no scenario in which you would be tempted to own an energy company.
1: Oh, there is a scenario if we could find one that worked for us. In, on our In, numbers. On your, your numbers, yeah.
0: Does, doesn't, they still don't I'm meet your numbers. be
1: delighted if that happened, but it hasn't.
0: Okay. So let's talk about some of the other stuff that you do. <laughs> I'm just sort of skimming down your top 10 holdings at the last you know, fact sheet date, which uh, something may have changed since then, but I can see, well, we can talk about some of these. Future, Circo, Tesco, uh, Next15, Cain, Cape, sorry, Cape with a K, The Prue, Alliance Pharma, Marlow, JTC, and... Uh, Bruin Dolphin, I think that was the top 10. Does that sound about right to you? That sounds about
1: right, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. sure. So first of all, just tell us about the top 10 overall. I mean, if you also look at your top and bottom contributors, they tend to mostly come from the top 10, no doubt, because they're the biggest holdings. I guess we should talk about future. That's been a bit of a disaster, hasn't it?
1: Well, I mean, we're, we're up about, I don't know, 10 times on our cost. Since you bought it. <laughs> yeah. but, it but it was 20 times. Yeah. Um, so Let's <laughs> market- look on the bright side. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the multiple, but this, so yeah, since November or December, it's come down by about half. And I think that is, to my mind, evidence that people are pricing recession to a degree, because that company, they've done nothing wrong in that time, they've beaten forecasts, there's literally nothing that they could have done more. The But the multiples come down from 24 down to about 11, um, the PE multiple. So until they can show People, what's going to happen in 2023 and 2024? In the current, the current mood is investors want to know absolutely for sure what those earnings will be in those two years. They can't tell investors the answer to that question. Now, in most most market modes, people aren't in that. They're not like that. They're not. They're not thinking that way. Um, but the company is trading very well. Their execution is superb. Uh, it generates loads of cash, and price is silly. And we've bought more. If there's a recession, then they're at the kind of cleverest end of the advertising market. But if advertising comes down, in the end, that will affect them. That's one of the things that companies often produce in a a recession. Their e commerce business potentially is exposed to volumes, but I think that side of their business is probably more resilient. um, I mean, in that, you know, if you're one of their clients and you're paying them a commission for a certain sale, I would argue in a recession, that's a much more tempting proposition than it is at any other time. So I think there's some resilience there, and I think they'll come through it and I think they'll do very well afterwards. But until people have sort of got better sense of what's coming, they're going to be wary. But, so, you know, I this, think it's a very is, good business. You know, we're looking slightly ahead and, yeah. and I think it's a very good business.
0: So is this one of the examples where you, uh, to the extent you can talk about this, where you might have been adding to a whole year, If you liked it 20 times, you're going to like it at 11 times. Exactly.
1: But, uh, but I'm conscious yeah. in the mood has changed so significantly that until people have actually seen earnings in a year's time and have seen if what a recession might do if there is a recession, they're going to be skittish. But I think it's a very good business. You know, they're handling inflation, they're handling everything they can handle. And I think it's a business that is very well positioned in the world we're in, broadly speaking, which is it has a lot of first party data, you know, huge amounts of first party data that they're very good at monetizing better than practically anyone else. And their acquisition model is also very value accretive. You know, they're very good at buying content that they then monetize because they're better at doing it than others. So I think there's lots of good things in that business and I'm happy to own it.
0: Well, let's look on the brighter side then. I mean, the um, well, tell us about some of the, the ones that are doing well in the current environment or relatively well anyway in the current
1: environment. Well, our biggest holding now is Serco and that's done incredibly well. So, I mean, since, well, this year it must be up, I don't know, a third or something or 25. I don't know exactly because I don't remember the start price of the year, but it's up in the last couple of months. It's up a good 25%. And it's up because they have a much better handle on what their earnings are going to be for a very long time, but the growth rate is lower. You know, it's a less dynamic business, but with much more visibility, and they they've got in almost all of their business they can pass on cost increases, which is obviously a very important point. They've got a fantastic order book. We liked it originally because I think there was a, there was a mispricing last year. We built we are with the biggest shareholders now in Circa, and we we, we built the position last year, mainly. We added some this year. And at the time, because they'd done very well out of COVID, there was a dip in earnings, and that put people off. But we took the view that uh, that COVID was a bit of a quirk. And if you take that out of the numbers, you've got very nice steady double-digit growth. And they've had a couple of upgrades this year um, already. They're just trading really well. It's very well, well managed. They're starting to buy back shares, because they, they generate a lot of cash. So it ticks an awful lot of boxes, Circo.
0: And then also in your sort of good performance, you've got Elixir and Rathbones. Tell us about those two. I don't know a lot about Elixir. I know a lot about Rathbones, but not... Uh, Elixir
1: is a a small consultancy business. Well, it's not quite as small as it was. It's done very well, but it's just a very well-managed, fast-growing consultancy. They are buying other consultancies as they go along, but they're very focused on areas where they can grow very quickly. And it's been it's been managed very very cleverly, and uh, we bought that company on a very low multiple of earnings. It was an IPO. I forget if it was twenty. I think it was twenty twenty. So it was at a time where IPOs were tricky, and so they were they they had to price it to go, and we were able to buy a reasonable position on very attractive terms. And they've executed very very well uh, subsequently. So yeah, we're happy with that. I mean, Rathbones has benefited from the the bid for Bruin Dolphin. I mean, our view is both of those businesses are a lot better than people give them credit for they've both had to invest quite a lot in their businesses in terms of in things you know it and that kind of stuff which is always very expensive but i think the thing people miss in those businesses is the stability of their earnings if you, if you forget i mean obviously market levels do have an impact but the most important thing they have is there's almost there's the level of churn in the customer base is almost zero and where well, you compare that with fund management, for instance, where there's massive churn, they're very good quality businesses, and they were they were trading at lower levels than most asset managers, which didn't make any sense. Even Rathbones in their fund management bit, which is a much smaller part of the business, the churn is 20-25% per annum. But the same with Jupiter, the same with Land Trust, the same with all these other companies. They, they raise loads of money, but they a lot of money goes out the door at the same time. So there's a it's a much tougher business. Whereas wealth management, churn is around half a percent. It's a much, it's much easier business to manage. And there's
0: a lot of consolidation going on in, in that business, obviously, for mainly for regulatory reasons and other reasons yeah. and so on. So uh, you're going to make some money out of Bruin Dolphin as well, are you?
1: Yeah, we'll make a lot of money on that. I mean, again, I wish we'd got more because we had a very strict limit. And so it was actually quite difficult to build a position. But yeah, but we'll make good money. Yeah, it was a 50% plus premium, I think. It was a good premium, I think. It was well, to, a, it, the bid itself. It was a good it was a, it was a very nice premium, I would say, indeed. Okay,
0: so what else is of interest in your portfolio? What would you kind of highlight the things that, that have got you a bit excited, shall we say? That's not a technical term, by the way. That's just a, an emotional term, but, you know. <laughs> uh,
1: no, we, we've added a lot here and there. We've added to um, our holding in Cape, which is an interesting business. It's on a very low multiple of earnings. It's about 11 times earnings. It's a very cash generative business, and their focus is on VPNs and sort of internet security. And this is an area now where a lot of people have realised that they should be doing more. You know, internet crime <laughs> keeps keeps getting worse, and they've got a very very good product suite. They've been acquisition driven, and they've been very very good on the acquisition side. They've done some very clever deals, but they've now built a very very powerful product suite that um, um, they should be able to optimise. Um, there's, you know, there's quite a lot of work they can do that's in, within their control to um, optimize the, the, the businesses they own now. But we like the fact you know, it's low multiple, generates cash, it's growing nicely. Um, it's an unusual situation for us in that there is a control shareholder, Terry who who's the chap who founded Playtech some years ago. Um, but he's he's been a very supportive shareholder of the business. Whenever the company does a deal, he lends the money, and then they pay him back later once they refinance with the banks. Um, so they're able to move very quickly. And so he's been great, and he's got a very good track record. The last business we owned where he was the majority was Safe Charge, which was a payments business, but we made, we made a lot of money. So, um, yeah, Cape, I think, is interesting. Uh, I mean, we own lots of other things. Um, but with that, we've added a lot of money to in the last Six months.
0: And on the debit side, I mean, what are the things that most concern you? We've got some significant holidays we've talked about future, but uh, that obviously you've explained but that one still looks very attractive. But uh, what are the things that you've been getting rid of or reducing because you're concerned about them?
1: Um, we haven't really sold much. I and mean, the only company we sold this year is Clinogen, which was a bid situation where we actually we, we were very active in creating that, that bid. But um, that's the only sort of material sale. Um, in uh, we're pretty happy with what we own. I mean, obviously we're not happy with every share price, but we're happy with. Uh, <laughs> but those where we're not happy, we've been buying. <laughs> so uh, that's um, yeah. And we, we've been involved in an unusual situation recently. This uh, company, Randall and Quilter, which is an insurance mm-hmm. business, where we and another shareholder blocked uh, a sale of the business, which was very, very poorly. Uh, conceived I mean I have no idea how the company got into that position of recommending a bid that they didn't really like themselves it was mad but um that is a business they're going to raise some money soon i think and um that will be adding to uh, but we've had a little bit of short term pain to have the long term gain there because we've had to block a bid so you know there've been a few things like that but um yeah but no I, i'm happy with what we own
0: well that's encouraging for i'm sure for people to hear Talking about other acquisitive businesses that you have an interest in, um, one that's been caught my eye recently is a company called Marlow. Perhaps you could uh, tell us what that one does and uh, and uh, what the interest in that one is. That's a, i been mean, growing by acquisition a, as well. That's his strategy basically.
1: Yes, I mean the Marlow model is very. It's very much based on the model for Restore, which um, is a document storage business, and the the acquisition team was led by Alex Dacre many years ago, and he went off to start Marlowe with one or two people who worked in, in the original Restore business. Restore was a successful roll-up uh, play. Marlowe's target is in sort of compliance businesses, compliance and safety. So safety around fire, water, HR, compliance, that those sorts of areas. And they've been very acquisitive. They are very, very acquisitive. They're definitely in a hurry. Um, <laughs> They they have they've been good in, I think, going up the value chain in the last couple of years. So there's a lot more software now in the business. There's a lot more recurring income, income, higher quality income, um, and that's a very conscious thing. But you know, acquisitions by themselves are of no interest. But if you, if the acquisitions are in an area where there's already where there's decent organic growth, and there is decent organic growth in their in, in most of their businesses, and it's pretty resilient. Growth as well, because a lot of this stuff is money that companies have to spend. You know, it's their customers need to do it, and then on top of that, they're able to buy very cheaply. Some of the businesses they're buying are very small, and they can just slot them in very easily. There are some very quick gains when they do that. You know, just in terms of getting the roots right and those sorts of things, there's quite a lot of um, gain. So yeah, it's it's been a very successful company. We've owned it now for a number of years. Uh, we're basically from when it started, I forget when that was, but maybe 10 years or eight years, something like that. And we've added over time, and um, they they quite often do placings to, to shareholders to, to fund the next deal. So we've added to the position several times in that period, and we remain very happy. You know, it's it's a nice steady growth business. If they hit their targets, you could see earnings much higher than forecast. Um the, the, the forecast tend not to reflect what could happen, uh, which I think will happen. I mean, they they tend to be ahead of forecasters as a business. They they are moving fast. So, yeah, it's a very well-managed, good business. Um, Do you think there's a problem
0: if we do get a bit more of a bear market? I mean, the ability to go on funding these deals through placings and so on, will that become more tricky for them?
1: I think it would. I mean, the, the ideal acquisitive business is one that can finance everything itself. But part of the reason they keep doing these placings is because they're in a hurry. They want to get on with it. You know, If they couldn't raise money in the way they have been, they could use more debt. They could also just slow down the rate of acquisition slightly. So I think you know, willing capital markets have enabled them to move faster. I don't think it's the end of the world if, if capital markets don't play ball. But it yeah, clearly makes things slower. Sometimes slower is better. You know, it depends on the market mood. But um, to me, the downside would be things would just take a bit longer. I don't think the business suddenly falls apart. It would just just take a bit longer. Yeah. Well, you say they're in a hurry, or they appear to be in a hurry anyway. That, uh, <laughs>
0: do. that doesn't, isn't always a good thing, but uh, it's nice when it does happen, it works and continues to work. Okay. So I think that's about it, Mark. It's very uh, good to talk to you and to hear that uh, you're still doing the same thing and you're not uh, being so panicked out of anything you own at the moment. Uh, that will be an encouraging message, I'm sure, for a lot of people. And just quickly, just a final word. I mean, you've now got a couple of other funds which are which are decent size. You've got the recovery fund and the income fund, which uh, you hired someone from uh, Premier Mighton to manage. Have you got anything else on the
1: launch pad? Nothing on the launch pad, no. I think it's the time just to kind of stick to our knitting and get things right. Um, so we're not going to try and be too clever for at least another year or two. Um, I think there's plenty to be doing at the moment uh, in terms of keeping an eye on what we've got and uh, making sure we make the most of a, a bear market you know i think i think the, the the right mindset in a bear market is to try and optimize it you know it is an opportunity since we've been going i didn't did an analysis a while ago actually of this so in some bear markets we've outperformed some we've underperformed but in all cases we've significantly outperformed coming out of the bear market and in the in the subsequent years And that's because you are able to load up on good things at low prices. So I'm really focused on making sure that we make the most of it. And I don't want any distractions in that time.
0: Okay, so thank you, Mark. This has been a Master Investor Podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again soon.
1: Thank you very much.